Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to We Have Ways, Family Stories, with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. For those of you new to the format, each Sunday we read a collection of stories about the wartime experiences of our listeners' families. The thing about the Second World War was that it was a truly global war which touched the lives of almost everyone, everywhere. So many people have interesting stories to tell, and we want to make sure new audiences hear them. Here's today's selection. We hope you enjoy them. We'll start with Jamie Young. First things first, I love the podcast, chaps, really great, especially the constantly interrupting each other bit. Proper middle-aged man stuff. My wife says it's like trying to talk to me after I've had four pints. I've attached some photos, which we will post on Twitter, that I was given by my nan, who sadly passed away in 2009. They were my granddad's and had been untouched in his bedside drawer for approximately 60 years. My granddad... Sergeant Dennis Ashton of the Remi spent his war in Egypt, Italy and France. He arrived in Normandy on D-Day plus one and was in the beach recovery unit. At some point after this, he was guarding some German POWs and apparently befriended a German soldier. When the war ended and he was demobbed, this German chap came home with Grandad, back to Guildford, presumably because his own home had been overrun by the Russians or had simply been destroyed and he had nowhere else to go. My granddad had married my nan in 1943, and the German soldier apparently cradled her baby, my uncle. My nan made him his first hot, home-cooked meal in a long time, and apparently he wept with gratitude at their kindness. As a token of his appreciation, he gave my granddad the things he owned, which were his photographs of his war. He'd kept them in his tunic pocket throughout, including his time as a prisoner. The German soldier was very tall and blonde, a true Aryan. This always struck me as funny, as my granddad was very dark and about five foot four. Along with these photos, we have my granddad's campaign medals, a couple of German bayonets, and his military-issue French franc notes for use in France. Anyway, I hope you read this out. It would be great to hear your thoughts. I loved my granddad. He was, and still is, my hero. Thank you. Keep up the good work. As I said, we'll post these photos today on Twitter, but for those wanting a little flavour, here's a brief description. Two are taken at the Nuremberg Rally, with thousands of people standing before a huge swastika on the podium. Another is taken at an indoor rally with Hitler speaking, no more than 15 yards away. What follows are a series of pictures that look almost like a sort of Nazis on tour album. German civilians in the street beside huge swastikas on drapes, German officers posing nonchalantly in front of a French river, a single German soldier in a French square that might be Amiens, posing by the main statue. Then we see German officers lounging casually on their tank, and finally, the smashed-up French cities, 
their bomb-damaged churches photographed in a perversion of the traditional holiday snap. Take a look on Twitter for yourself. They really are extraordinary. This story comes from Ben Ross. On the 9th of May, 1945, my grandparents were married. Here's their short story. Grandad was a pre-war regular in the 2nd Battalion, the Queen's own Cameron Highlanders. He always said the turning point in his life was the Great Depression, when he lost his job and joined the Liverpool Scottish and then the Camerons. In 1937, he left the army and was working for the NAFI in Jerusalem when war was declared. He re-enlisted and tried to rejoin the Camerons, but was made to join the RASC instead. My grandparents met in 1937 and continued a long-distance relationship throughout the war. Grandad was in the Middle East and North Africa until mid-1943 and endured the first siege of Tobruk for six months. He landed in Normandy on D plus six and followed the front line until he reached Antwerp. By this time, Grandad had proposed by post to Granny, who accepted also by post, which seems unbelievable nowadays. The date for their wedding was set for the 9th of May 1945 at St Andrew's Church in Maghull, just north of Liverpool. Grandad's future father-in-law was a produce broker and imported veg and flowers from Holland. He said to my grandad, If you're ever in Holland, please try and help a friend of mine over there and his family. By April 1945, Grandad was based in Antwerp, and after a lot of hunting around, he managed to find the village in Holland where his father-in-law's friend lived. The family had young children and was starving, and my grandad arrived on their doorstep, out of the blue, with supplies of food, toothpaste and chocolate. It must have seemed like a miracle. He visited them several times with supplies, and when he was leaving for the last time, Mr Van Burkite said, I'd like to give you a wedding present. In the hallway of his house, there were two ornamental clocks on the wall. He said, which one would you like? Slightly embarrassed, Grandad took one and went back to Antwerp. Then he took it to pieces, put it in his kit bag and brought it home. Grandad was given five days leave for his wedding and Granny was a fire watcher and also got time off. He sailed to London from Antwerp on the 8th of May and whilst en route, news came through the war in Europe had ended. When they arrived at Tilbury Docks, there was no one there. Everyone was partying, celebrating the end of the war, so they were delayed disembarking. Grandad eventually got off the ship, made it across London, through the throngs of people and got back to Maggle just in time for the wedding. The wedding bells were rung for the first time since the war started. My grandparents were happily married for 68 years before Granny passed away in 2013. Grandad passed away just shy of his 106th birthday a few years ago. The ornamental clock given by a grateful family in Holland lived on a wall in Granny and Grandad's sitting room for 70 years. This is from Tom Porter. My uncle Arthur Lee saw six years of active service in the Royal Navy during the war and was present at some of the key events in the conflict. He came through without a scratch, but had some very near misses. When war broke out, he was already serving, having joined as a boy sailor in 1937. He was stationed on the heavy cruiser HMS Norfolk for much of the war, 
And in October 1939, she left the harbour at Scapa Flow just 24 hours before a German U-boat slipped in and sank the battleship HMS Royal Oak, which caused the loss of more than 800 lives. Arthur was with the Norfolk in May 1941, less than half a mile away from HMS Hood when she was destroyed by the Bismarck in the Battle of Denmark Strait. He described how the ship disintegrated before their eyes, leaving virtually no surface wreckage, not even a sheet of toilet paper, he said. One of the Norfolk's leading torpedo operators had a son serving on the hood. Arthur said he never forgot the man turning to the ship's captain and saying, at least I know how my son died. Still on the Norfolk, Arthur served on Arctic convoy duty, at one point escorting the infamous convoy to hell, PQ-17, in 1942, in which only 12 of the 36 ships made it to Russia. When the order to scatter was given after the convoy was attacked, he described the harrowing experience of not being able to stop to pick up survivors because of the U-boat threat. They threw lifeboats to some of them in the hope they might be rescued later. Arthur was not a fan of the Russians. He recalled sailing into Murmansk after surviving another convoy. We were expecting a hero's welcome after the losses we'd suffered, trying to supply their war effort, he said. But the crew were not even invited ashore, and on the dockside before them, Arthur saw unopened crates of supplies that they had delivered last time around. Although crew members were not invited ashore, the Russian authorities did at least send the Red Fleet Choir on board to entertain them. After posting back home, Arthur ended the war in the Far East. When the war ended, he was in Burma training with a Royal Marine Commando unit preparing to invade Singapore and seize harbour installations. It would have been a very tough operation, he said, and he breathed a sigh of relief when the A-bombs were dropped on Japan, ending the war. Arthur Lee went on to enjoy a distinguished career in the post-war Navy, being one of the few non-commissioned officers to be awarded the Queen's Coronation Medal in 1953. He was a quiet and modest man who rarely talked about his naval exploits. When he did, I found him hard to understand because of his thick West Country accent. Luckily, my father, who was a journalist, interviewed him and wrote up a brief biography for family members. Arthur died in 1999, aged 77. And this story is from William Carver. I'd like to share a story about my great-uncle, Thomas Marsh, who fought with the 8th Army pretty much from the start of the war through to his death in Italy in October 1944. I've got all his letters in a whopping great strong box in the loft, and to be honest, it's been one of those jobs I've put off as happening another day for the past 20-odd years. Anyway, lockdown happened, and I found myself with not much to do, so I thought I'd finally start going through them. One in particular caught my eye. In it, he relates how, in North Africa, they had the great good fortune to find a crate of beer captured from some Italians. He and a couple of other officers were in dire need of a drink, but the beer was incredibly hot, this being the North African desert, and they were at a loss as to what to do. Should they drink the beer boiling hot, or abandon it and move on? Fortunately, one of his mates was able to locate a jerry can of petrol. Thomas doesn't elaborate on how. They dug a pit in the baking ground, put the bottles of beer in, and then poured the petrol over the top. Due to the heat, the petrol basically evaporated almost instantly, bringing the bottles and the beer down to a most pleasing temperature in a matter of seconds. I have an image of the young man I see in old black and white photos, sitting on a rock somewhere deep in the desert, 
having been shot up, blown up, marched backwards and forwards for months, and finally taking a sip of that beer. I hope it tasted good. He finished as an acting major, won an MC crossing the River Murano near Ospedaletto, before being killed on the 24th of October, 1944. He's buried in Cesena War Cemetery, just south of Ravenna. I think once this is all over, I may have to go and see him and pay my respects. This is from Dan Vaughan Obes. Hello, Alan James. I bloody love the podcast. I've listened to every episode during the various lockdowns, and it's really been a very enjoyable way to pass the time. My family hails from East Ham in East London. During the Blitz, my nan, Ellen, twice survived being bombed out by direct hits and had her third home seriously damaged by a V1. Early on in the Blitz, her first home was totally destroyed by a direct hit while she was in a shelter nearby. She had to move back home to live with her mum. When my granddad came home on leave from the army, they rented a new flat near East Ham tube station. While he was away, the air raids understandably terrified my nan, so she had an agreement with her female neighbour who lived in the flat downstairs to go to the shelter together whenever there was bombing. One night, when an air raid started, she ran down to her neighbour and knocked, but there was no answer. The neighbour was away for the weekend, and an air raid warden found my nan running hysterically down East Ham High Street in her nightdress. The warden dragged her into a public shelter, and when the all-clear sounded, she returned to find her second home had taken a direct hit and was now a smoking pile of rubble. Her third and final home, the one I remember my grandparents living in when I was growing up, was in Bartle Avenue, East Ham. A V1 hit a street nearby, and the blast damaged the front of this house. My Aunt Kath, who was shopping in the high street, heard the V1 pass over. She also heard the subsequent blast and saw a pall of smoke. Kath ran down the street and into the damaged house to check my nan was okay, only to fall down a hole in the floor and break her leg. My nan was at the back of the house at the time and luckily was unhurt. One other blitz story concerning my nan and Aunt Kath. Being one of the first to emerge after the all clear, my Aunt Kath came up and found the high street covered with squirming live eels. The pie and mash shop had been damaged by a bomb and a glass tank of eels had spilled all over the road. What with rationing, Kath wasted no time grabbing some eels and shoving them inside her coat. My nan remembers her coming into the kitchen opening her coat and eels falling out all over the place. Nan and Kath didn't actually know what to do with the eels and ended up having to enlist the help of a neighbour to dispatch them. And this one is from Tom Ashard. My name's Tom Ashard long-time independent company member and occasional contributor to the sidebar of shame during the live streams. Firstly, thanks for all you've done over the past year to maintain my sanity during the pandemic. I'm a paramedic and the pod and regular live streams have been a very welcome distraction from some pretty horrible days at work. I've been really enjoying Al's reading of The Wings of Pegasus, particularly as my grandfather was present for some of these events. His name was Anthony Ashard a leading aircraftsman with 296 Squadron, and he proudly called himself a founding member of the squadron. He wanted to be a pilot, but unfortunately, 
destroyed one too many fences on landing, and so he finished the war as a bomb aimer and navigator on mosquitoes. My grandfather was my hero growing up, and I can honestly say that my Second World War affliction comes directly from him. He gave me my first book on D-Day, and I am the family caretaker of all his training materials and uniform. He passed away when I was 14, in 1999, but a few months before then, I spent an unforgettable couple of hours interviewing him about his wartime experiences for a school project. He joined the RAF age 16 in January 1939 through an apprenticeship programme known as Lord Trenchard's Brats. He was posted to the newly formed 296 Squadron at Neverhaven and spent the next two years maintaining Whitley's and other tow aircraft, as well as checking and maintaining parachute static lines. Another job was loading propaganda leaflets and empty parachutes to be dropped over France in order to harass and worry the Germans. But my favourite story concerns his time during the 6th Airborne's training. He was volunteered to play the enemy and guard a bridge and stop airborne troops from capturing it. Expecting a loud and noisy attack from either end of the bridge, he and his mates were most upset to be snuck up on, roughed up, tied up and put in the back of their own lorry. He said he thought, that was cheating. I often wonder if this was training for Operation Deadstick, but sadly we'll never know. Either way, he was incredibly proud to be able to say he was part of the training of the airborne forces. He was an artist all through his life and painted several paintings of his wartime memories. I have three of them, but one has always been my favourite. It was only when this painting needed reframing that I found an inscription which reads Whitley's and Horsa Gliders over Neverhaven, 296 Squadron, 1942. Kind regards, Tom Ashard, Weymouth, Dorset. This is from David Ludlow. My grandfather, Staff Sergeant John Edmund Ludlow, known to everyone as Jack, was part of Remy. In 1945, he was stationed in the Netherlands. On the 4th of June, he was ordered to go to Hamburg to collect some wireless valves from a unit station, accompanied by his friend Jock. He wrote of the trip in his letters to my grandmother. They make quite grim reading, and to my knowledge, he never spoke about this visit. On the way back from Hamburg, they took the Autobahn to Hanover, but found that most of the bridges had been blown by Jerry, so they were forced to stop overnight at an RAF camp in Zella. It was here that they learned that the Belsen camp was nearby, and they decided to pay a visit. By this point, the camp had been shut down, and my grandfather was told they would need the 21st Army Group Authority to get into Number 1 camp, which my grandfather described as the real horror camp, and the one now burnt down. They made their way down to Number 1 camp, and this is my grandfather's account in his own words. The chap in charge of the guard came to us, and warned us of typhus in the area. As he spoke, we found out he was Scotch, and so, as jockey's Scotch, after very little persuasion, he gave us a formally conducted tour of Number 1 camp, which was still burning. We saw the pit, often photographed for the newspapers, then the gas chamber, which had partly collapsed during the burning, and then the incinerator, with its outlet for the ashes of those who were put in there. There were still plenty of bones and ashes about, and alongside was a clenched fist, left hand partly burned, but easily recognisable as part of the flesh was still there. There was a floor made of human bones with human ashes and cement covering it. 
and lastly the graves, thousands of them, with most holding more than one person. The local people had been made to bury the bodies that were lying about. Altogether, there were around 10,000 unburied dead bodies when the place was captured on May the 5th, and since then, around 60 more people die every day. The burning at the camp starts at 11 o'clock each day and finishes late at night, and even then, there are plenty left for the next day. My grandfather continues the description in his next letter back home. When the Scotch chap had finished showing us round the camp, he took us to the camp commander's office, and we took one or two souvenirs, including a rubber stamp for office papers and two little gramophone records. I don't know if these are the ones that were supposed to have been played by the Beast of Belson while people were being tortured outside. David continues, I'm not sure what happened to the gramophone records. I still have the stamps and a medical vial, which I believe is some kind of steroid, and I've been in touch with Bergen Belson about returning them. I think I'll have to do it in person, as sending old Nazi steroids in the post doesn't seem like a good idea. Kind regards, David. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our listeners' family stories. If you'd like to send us a family story for consideration, please email us at wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or go onto our members' site on Patreon and click on the family stories icon. Add your story there. Cheerio. Cheerio.